You're listening to the Royal Society of Medicine Digital Health Council podcast, where we explore health tech innovations that are transforming healthcare. With me, your host, Dr. Annabelle Painter. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Our episode today focuses on the question of how we evaluate digital health technologies. Joining me is Dr. Syra Gafour, who's a respiratory consultant and co-founder of Prova Health, a company specialising in evidence generation for digital health technologies. Syra first came onto the podcast back in 2020, in the early days of Prova Health, and I'm delighted to welcome her back to share her insights from evaluating technologies over the last few years. Our discussion covers the different types of evidence required at different stages of product development. We also discuss the use of innovative approaches, such as simulation, and the importance of linking evidence and reimbursement, and different international approaches that are being implemented to tackle this. I think this is such an important topic, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Syra. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back. So our episode today is focusing on evaluation of digital health solutions. And we couldn't have a better person on to talk to us about this today, given all that you're doing at Prova. So to start us off, could you please let our listeners know what is it that you do at Prova? Absolutely. So it's been, I think, about two or three years since I first came on. Um, and Prova was just in its infancy at that point. So we've set up Prova Health, so myself and three co-founders. We started off originally working at Imperial College, where we were thrown the challenge of here's a digital solution that a company wanted to evaluate, and how could we do that in a more kind of novel and pragmatic way. And we used simulation as methodology, and we did that several different times, different studies that kind of got more sophisticated each time. And what we quickly realised was that there's a huge gap in the market in terms of evidence generation for digital health tools. And this was very much at the same time when the COVID pandemic started and we saw this slew of digital technologies that come into the market. Um, And obviously you see so many of them with very little evidence behind them. And that's where the, the idea of Prova was born. And what we do there is very much focus on creating evidence generation for digital health tools. Um, and we do that across the board. We work internationally, we work with you know big tech, big pharma, smaller startups and SMEs. And we know that our traditional methodology of doing evidence generation in healthcare, the gold standard is the randomized controlled trial. And as innovators, we know that this is not always possible. It's not always the right thing to do either. So we need to think of more pragmatic and innovative ways uh, of being able to generate this evidence at different stages. Um, of the evolution of a tech product. So I think it would be useful to set the scene when we think about evidence generation for digital health. There's lots of reasons why innovators might need to generate evidence or might want to generate evidence. And that varies both depending on what stage their product might be at, but also what purpose they are thinking of in terms of that evidence. So can you tell us a bit about the different kinds of evidence that innovators might choose to obtain. Absolutely. And I think the the really important thing about evidence is, I mean, as clinicians, it's all about evidence-based practice. Where is your evidence coming from? 
you know, how do we know something works? And with digital health tools, I think digital health is sometimes a bit of a misnomer when we talk about it, because pretty much every part um, of what we do in healthcare is digitised to some extent. And not all of it has the evidence behind it that, that drugs, different treatments, etc., have. And interestingly, there was a paper published last year um, by collaborators at Rock Health and Johns Hopkins University, and they looked at, it was, I think, about 250-odd um, startups in the U.S., and they found that at least 45% of those didn't have any regulatory filings or any kind of clinical trials. Uh, so that's huge, actually, when you kind of think about it. And that's on a spectrum as well. The remaining kind of 66% uh, also, you know, what type of evidence did they have and how many of them were clinically robust? So when we look at the type of evidence we're looking for in digital health, the first thing an innovator needs to think about is who are you trying to demonstrate value to? Is it for patients? Is it for clinicians? Is it for health systems? Uh, or is it for investors? And very quickly, then that kind of tells you the type of evidence that you may need to produce. And then the next thing is what type of evidence are you trying to um, produce? Is it clinical? Is it financial? Is it operational? Uh, or is it user experience uh, or experience value type of data that you're trying to generate? And this will differ based on the kind of stakeholders that you're trying to reach out to. Um, and I think one of the really great ways of thinking, or certainly what really helps me think about it, is what stage of product development are you at? Uh, so is it early stage um, when you're just kind of starting off and you've got lots of different iterations of the product till you kind of find that MVP? Uh, is it kind of that regulatory approval when you're kind of looking more at safety and performance issues or security issues? Um, and then you kind of move on to reimbursement and you're going to have to be able to demonstrate clinical outcomes for that and also um, economic data as well. And then you, you've got to think about once you've deployed the product, it's all about post-market surveillance um, and how do you optimise all of that and make sure that you're using your kind of real world data uh, that you're generating um, and using that either for, uh, again, staying in the market or clinical outcomes or how you can make any iterations to improve that product as well. So there's lots of different ways to think about it. Is it who's this evidence for? What type of evidence am I, am I trying to generate? Uh, what stage of product development are we at? And what are the different types of studies that can be done um, at each of the different stages? And that helps to try and break it down that's a really helpful way of thinking about it. So thank you for breaking it down like that. And it would be great to just dig into those different use cases a little bit and discuss the kind of studies that might be able to be done at each of those stages. Perhaps if we start at an early stage company who is trying to get to the stage where they've got an MVP and is looking for kind of a proof of concept study or something like that, what at that stage, what kind of studies are possible or would you recommend? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that early product development stage, you're, you're going to have to uh, try and iterate any product. And that's where your learning is really going to come from. Uh, so at that point, what you can really look at is different types of, um, for example, qualitative studies. Uh, you can look at um, simulation studies, looking at user feedback. And that user can be either uh, clinicians or it can be patients at that point in time. So these kind of studies can be done um multiple different sites can be replicated quickly you've got the qualitative data but also you can collect some quantitative data there as well 
um, and really helps you kind of quickly iterate that product from that quick user feedback. So certainly simulation is one of the key ones that you can use, especially when you've got that chicken and egg situation, whenever you start with an innovation. Um, you go to a healthcare facility who asks for evidence before it's kind of deployed or tested. But without that uh, testing interface, you can't deploy that, you can't generate that evidence. So actually simulation is a really great way of doing that. And it's one of the things that we've all probably used in our clinical training at some point. Uh, but certainly simulation is a great way to be able to generate this evidence because you can control for lots of different factors, um, make sure you've got really robust use cases, but also use the kind of synthetic patient data, populate the different cases and really make it as robust as possible, make it as realistic as possible. Um, and you can do this remotely, you can do it, you know, in lots of different geographical locations as well and collect that different data, whether it's qualitative or quantitative, um, and analyse that to help iterate. Yeah, I feel like at this stage, the, the real emphasis has to be on kind of generating evidence quickly. It's about really uh, working out what the problem is for your users. It's about finding that product market fit. And it's less about having really robust um, research methodology in terms of, you know, having prospective studies or having really high quality data, because at this point, that's not the focus of the evidence generation. I think what you want to make sure is high quality is your ability to solve your user problem. So I think that can be a, a good way of, of focusing the evidence generation at that stage. And then if we move slightly further down the pathway, so let's say someone has got their kind of proof of concept um, study done, they've developed a product that they think really meets a need, and they then want to start generating evidence, for example, regulatory approval. Can you talk us through the type of evidence that's required for regulatory approval and how that might differ from what we were just talking about in the first stage? Absolutely. Once you've got your kind of MVP for testing purposes, uh, you really need to start looking at different types um, of evidence again. Uh, so different things that you can look at, you can look at clinical safety and performance, obviously key to anything that you're going to deploy. Um, look at any kind of risk assessments that you need to do, um, looking at any of the kind of technical documentation that you need to then file for. Um, so thinking what class of uh, tool technology is this, what regulatory tech, uh, kind of documentation do I need for this and what studies might I need to do for that or what um, evidence needs to be um, present for that technical documentation. Um, and then one to really think about is security and data standards, which are absolutely critical to any kind of tool that we're deploying in the market. Um, and another little pet project of mine is... <laughs> Uh, making sure any products are cyber secure. So very, very necessary to make sure all of these are done because that is part of any kind of regulatory approval that you're going to get depending on which market you're aiming for. Um, and certainly, again, making sure that whoever then you're trying to provide this evidence for further on down the line, they will, you know, every part of due diligence, this will be part of that. Um, so that's critical for that regulatory approval side of things. And can we just dig in at this point into the, the actual clinical evaluation part of that? Um, because as you suggested, there are various elements to regulatory approval, including technical documentation, but also this, the your clinical evidence report. So obviously this depends on the class of the product you're um, developing, as you were mentioning, but the vast majority of digital health technologies are 
certainly in the EU, if you think about EU MDR, sit within class two, 2A devices. So if we use that as an example, what kind of calibre of evidence is required? What kind of studies might someone undertake if they were trying to obtain approval for a class 2A medical device? Um, absolutely. So for regulatory approval, you've got to really look at your clinical outcomes data and making sure that you have that positive effect on care, which you're stating that it does. Um, and then for types of evidence for that, so just as we would traditionally, for example, use in pharma or any other kind of academic studies, whether it's an RCT, whether it's a case control study, uh, whether it's an observational study. So it's all the different types of studies that then you can look at and see what is the best fit for your product, what outcomes you're trying to generate, what access to data you have. Um, and again, one of the key things that's going to come down to is how much funding you have to run any of these studies as well. Is it something that's going to be deployed across multi-centres? Can you do it with different arms? Um, what data are you having access to? Um, how many patients or end users will you have access to as well? So it's kind of making sure um, you've got the right study and the right fit for that study as well. Um, and again, there's lots of different ways that you can do it. Is an RCT the best way to do it? Likely not. In some cases, absolutely necessary. So it's just thinking about the right type of study for that kind of clinical outcome that you're trying to demonstrate. Um, and that will vary across the board. Okay, so if we move now on to developing uh, evidence to demonstrate value to clients, so how does this differ from regulatory approval? So what is it that is lacking from the evidence that's generally developed at the stage of regulatory approval that clients may need or may want? Uh, absolutely. So one of the key things is a pair would want to make sure that there's kind of economic evidence as well as the kind of clinical outcomes. So a pair who's thinking, OK, here's a new digital tool. How is it going to improve the service at this healthcare system? Uh, how are we going to demonstrate any return on investment? Is it going to be cheaper for me to deploy this versus X, Y or Z? And all the other types of evidence, the safety, the clinical, the kind of user testing is already part and parcel of everything. That should already be there, but very much it's that kind of economic angle as well, which I think a lot of the time is missing and is sometimes very difficult to generate, especially when you're very early on as well. But again, it's that linking it back to who am I trying to speak to, what evidence I need for that person, what stage of development am I at? Um, and it's very different for a pair because at the end of the day, they've got a limited budget. Things are even more limited now. And to make sure you've got a very good economic evaluation that then you can present to say that this is going to be either your saving, your efficiency, your return on investment for X tool. Yeah, so I think it's helpful to think of it as like st stepping out, uh, imagining how that product is performing within a system. So whereas the evidence you need for regulatory approval is really how does this product work? Is it safe and does it do what it claims to do in terms of clinical performance? But that's not to say that it would necessarily work as the, the client may want in the system, in the healthcare system and in a pathway. But I think this is such a challenging uh, bit of evidence to generate because it's very hard to know how a technology will impact a system and a workflow when often those workflows need to be transformed in order to incorporate that technology effectively. So for example, let's say you have 
a digital health technology that's an AI algorithm that's being used to triage the interpretation of scans. You may well need to change your whole pathway of scan interpretation and to therefore know how that will affect a given system before it's in there is very hard to prove. So I'm really interested in your approach to this and if you have any examples of the kind of studies that you might you might undertake at this stage. So I think this is the really interesting part is what we kind of look at real world evidence and real world data. So actually some of these things you can anticipate fully uh, and that's when you need that deployment stage when something's actually working in a healthcare system and it'll throw up so many different challenges uh, at that point. So real world evidence, and real world data, these are absolutely like, critical in terms of knowing how we're going to use a tool in a real setting, in a healthcare setting. And actually, really interestingly, when we look at different um, kind of country examples and looking at that kind of reimbursement topic as, uh, topic as well, um, how that actually works, we look to Germany. They've got the DIGA system, and I'll call it DIGA because uh, I don't think I'll be able to pronounce <laughs> what it actually stands for. Um, but their kind of pathway to reimbursement um, is uh, really to try and fast track the process for digital health apps and tools to be included in a national directory. And currently they have got, I think, 18 fully validated um, apps that are on that directory. And the federal body that is responsible maintains this. And basically the, the basic level of evidence you need to provide uh, to meet the, the entry standards are quality, safety, um, security, data protection, interoperability. And for devices that can meet these minimum standards, uh, but don't have that kind of real world, you know, here's the clinical outcomes or here's a pathway of care that's going to be changed. These tools can be included on a preliminary basis. And then the manufacturers have the next year to be able to generate this real world evidence um, in a clinical setting. Um, and to be able to show that actually it has had that positive care effect on X clinical outcome or this pathway or this has changed and generate that evidence there. So I think that's really, really important to be able to give um, innovators that chance uh, to say, here's a tool that's kind of met the minimum requirements for entry, but actually we're going to spend another year uh, generating that real world evidence to show that it does work and then that's fully integrated into the directory then um, and then looking to France they're doing something very similar as well um, and giving innovators that um, kind of possibility to collect uh, real world evidence and kind of push that forward as well. So I think in the if we think about the UK now this is similar to what's happening with NICE. So NICE have their evidence standard framework which advises on the evidence standards for different digital health technologies and unlike the evidence requirements for regulation it includes that economic analysis and what they have started to do is introduce early value assessments um, because of an awareness that the traditional nice approval process is very lengthy and um, needs to be updated in order to be fit for purpose for rapidly developing digital health technologies. So uh, they are at starting early value assessments which will provide a sort of preliminary approval for companies and then allow them to generate more evidence. Do you, do you see that as being similar to, to what's happening in, in Germany and France or do you think it's a different approach? Um, I think it's similar to certain degrees. 
I think one of the really great things about this is that the EVA programme is really helping to evaluate um, solutions that are addressing significant unmet needs in the UK. So things like mental health, really important. So I think that's a great way that NICE has kind of come in to look at some of these areas. Um, And I think definitely push forward. um, And it's the UK's own version of it in the digital health market. Um, I think one of the things that is slightly missing, and I think it's missing from all the different, uh, so if you look at the FDA, whether you look at the German example, I think the French are slightly better, but um, certainly look at NICE as well, is the clinician engagement side of things. And this is one thing that we've seen is definitely missing from all the different programmes and certainly your report that you published, I think it was last year, uh, looking at how you work with clinicians to appreciate different, you know, whether it's AI, different digital health tools. Basically, if you don't take clinicians along with you who are essentially either going to be using this product as the end user or recommending it to patients, Um, and to other members of the public, it's very difficult to really spread and scale that tool and really make sure that you've got the maximal adoption that you possibly can have because they are either, as I said, your end users or they're going to be recommending it. And either we need to make sure that clinicians have time for education in terms of whether it's undergraduate, postgraduate wise, know how to use any innovations that are actually kind of given the time to learn about things on the job as opposed to, oh, here's a new tool, good luck, Uh, let us know how you get on. Um, And also, how can they safely recommend things to patients in the public? And that's a huge thing. Um, And I think when we look at different surveys that have been done of clinicians, it's always that, how do I know this is safe? How do I know this is effective? And it's very much back to that really basic thing of where is the evidence for this tool? Uh, so right back to the start, who are you creating this evidence for? Uh, and if an innovator goes into any healthcare system, the first question you're going to be asked, how do I know this is safe? How do I know this works? How can I safely recommend this to patients in the public? So, you know, we used to have the NHS apps library. We need something similar again, I think it would be fantastic. Uh, certainly, EVA, the early value assessment is moving in the right direction. Uh, looking at other international examples as well. But I think that really key thing is to make sure that we're bringing clinicians with us uh, and evidence is going to be part and parcel of everything uh, to really recommend and push that adoption side of things. Yeah, I totally agree. As you're mentioning, we released a paper called Developing Healthcare Workers' Confidence in AI last year. And as part of that research, what was very clear is that you know trust and confidence are so so important in the success of digital health technologies and clinicians we are trained in evidence-based medicine and we expect the same standards of evidence from digital health technologies as traditional therapeutics for example medication and what we I think are often looking for is a kind of stamp of approval from somewhere to say this is something that is trustworthy and I think that perhaps is what's lacking at the moment in the current picture is that there's no repository of approved technologies as it sounds like there is in this DIGA format in Germany and I think that's actually what often people are looking for is some sense of having an approved technology and I think that's the premise behind the 
early value assessment model and trying to um, have a more dynamic and a more kind of agile approach to um, generating this kind of approval for technology. So it'd be interesting to see how that develops. But I, I, I totally agree with you that, you know, clinician trust and buying is so, so important. And without that, no matter how good a technology is in isolation, if, if clinicians don't trust it and it doesn't work in their systems, in their clinical workflows, and in a way that they they find useful, it won't succeed. That kind of national regulatory piece as well to, to uh, communicate with the innovators what is needed uh, as a minimum standard uh, and what they're looking for. Because actually, when you kind of look at it every single time an innovator uh, you know, communicates with whoever the pair is, whether it's, you know, one hospital, one primary care surgery, somewhere else. I mean, why you would have to do that over and over again, it just doesn't make sense. It's not efficient. It's not good for anybody across, whether it's patients, providers, clinicians, pairs. Uh, and actually, if you've got this kind of directory, you've got to do it once and you're not going to try and sell to 42 different ICSs or however you do it, you know, that you're streamlining the process and it makes it much better for everyone. And especially if there's a brilliant tool that's out there, uh, people know that, yes, it's got evidence, it's effective, it's got X, Y and Z that's required uh, and it's much, much easier to adopt and then to spread and scale it across for whoever might need that. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely a need for a more strategic and streamlined approach to that evidence piece. I want to touch on another area which you mentioned earlier, which is on the continuous monitoring side of things, because at the moment, as part of um, the regulatory process, you are required to do continuous monitoring of products. However, there's no stipulated way in which that has to be done. And so I'm wondering if you could talk us through how um, an innovator might approach real world evidence generation and continuous monitoring of products. Uh, yeah, again, absolutely. Is thinking about how you're actually deploying that tool, where you're deploying it into. Uh, again, looking at what the kind of clinical outcomes that you're trying to demonstrate, uh, what type of study you can potentially run what questions you're going to answer, what you kind of uh, what other data do you have as a comparator baseline? So lots of like national repositories of data, um, you know, whether it is CPRD data, HES data, etc. Is that your kind of baseline comparator? Are you using it to compare it to something? What are you going to use to change? Uh, and what kind of time period are you able to do this under as well? So lots of different questions different ways that you can kind of modify the study into what you're kind of looking to generate at the end of it. But certainly I think that's one of the kind of critical things is being able to generate that data. Um, and there's so many different studies that you can pull out of that um, and help pick up any kind of deficiencies in the product, how it actually fits in a pathway, what you need to change subsequently. Um, and then actually looking at any positive and negative attributes that you might not even pick up on or you might not have even thought of right at the beginning. Yeah, and I think an important point here as well is that we need to think quite proactively about the step before um, it gets to deployment. So, for example, a digital health technology that's deployed within an NHS trust, that digital health technology may need ongoing access to that trust data in some format in order to be monitoring that product effectively. So there needs to be a collaborative effort there and perhaps some kind of data sharing agreements long term to make sure that the, the adequate data is being pulled out. So it's just something that needs to be 
thought about in advance rather than once a product is deployed. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got to think who are the data controllers as well and then publishing things as well to make sure that you've got that good working relationship. So the final area that you mentioned that I think would be interesting to talk about is proving potential to investors. So this is a very different angle on evidence generation. Can you tell us a bit about what kind of evidence companies might produce for investors and how that might differ from the other evidence we've talked about so far? So over COVID, we saw a massive rise in the amount of venture capital money there was um, and kind of crazy valuations of companies. There's a lot of money for investment, digital health tools, but very much without that evidence. Um, And I think this bit is definitely changing because there's much less money to go around. You've seen lots of like huge layoffs across tech companies, including health tech as well. And investors probably saw this as a bit forgiven that actually this does have evidence behind it. It does work. You know, people are scrutinising things an awful lot more than what would have been the case probably two or three years ago. Um, I think at that point, there was also the opportunity of we need to move fast because, you know, this is a way forward and we can kind of do this as we go along. Whereas now, with the fact that there is much less money to go around, people are making sure that that due diligence is done. Um, And again, it's back to the the basic thing of does this say what it does in the tin? Uh, Is this clinical outcome validated? Uh, And very much that kind of uh, some of that financial evidence as well, or that economic evidence is just going to give, you know, potentially, even if you don't have that evidence there, here's our projections of this is how it may save money. This is how it will improve outcomes. This is how it will improve processes. Um, without kind of pie in the sky this is you know I am saying that this is going to cure cancer in five years but not going to show you any pathway of how to get there you know we've seen the worst case scenario the kind of uh, the wild west and uh, bad blood and everything else we've seen all of those like worst case scenarios and actually there have been some really terrible ones when you kind of look into you know bad behavior by companies so I think investors are scared as well because you know, there's been a massive shakeup in the market. Uh, as I said, less money to go around and people are being a lot more diligent um, about evidence that they're looking for now as well. So I think it's all of those things before you had the presumption uh, that things worked, evidence was there um, and it said what it did in the tin, whereas actually now it's a very different climate that we're working in. Yeah, definitely. But sounds like there's a lot of alignment there in terms of what that evidence would actually be. It's it's clinical evidence that it genuinely works and that there's you know, an economic um, case for, for that product as well. So now we've covered all of those areas in terms of evidence generation. Could you give us a real world example of a project that you've worked on at Prover or perhaps a couple that fit within those different buckets? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So one, we did a real world um, evidence piece on uh, Accurex's uh, self-book tool. And that's one of the tools that the NHS has been using, certainly through COVID and subsequently. So it was a mixed methods approach. Um, and we had a qualitative part and a quantitative part. Um, and the qualitative part was um, interview GP staff serving patients from 14 different GP surgeries, which were kind of looking after um, approximately 250,000 patients. And what the qualitative data allowed was a kind of more in-depth approach of the, the tool's benefits and provided insights that quantitative data may not have uh, fully revealed on its own. 
And some of the key themes that emerged were ones that we were kind of talking about were how uh, insights into workflow improvements within practices, how improved uh, or reduced staff uh, stress levels in staff, um, but also improved um, efficiencies uh, within the practice as well. So uh, some of this qualitative data also allowed us to kind of corroborate some of the quantitative insights, for example, the reduced dependency uh, using phone booking as opposed to the Accurex booking. And the evaluation also indicated that patients had a very positive experience using the product as well. And I think the mixed methods approach provides a much more comprehensive understanding uh, of the deployment of the tool as it kind of captures the complexity, but also the nuance um, of how different tools are being used in real world settings. Um, and one of the other critical parts of the evaluation that we undertook the partner um, was the kind of health economic impact. And again, that's very much critical an innovator needs to be able to demonstrate uh, its impact to a health system or pair so I think the two or the three different kind of methodologies the qualitative quantitative um, and the health economic impact uh, kind of gave that robust real world evidence um, study that that innovator could then use um, for further alignment. Thank you. It's really helpful to hear, hear a real world example like that, um, especially one that covers a few of those different areas that we've been talking about earlier. So to finish off, I'm interested in your thoughts on the future for clinical evaluation of digital health technology. So what do you foresee being the biggest challenge in the next few years? Um, so I think for innovators, there's going to be a lot more regulation. And actually, that's probably a good thing in a way, because innovators will then have that expectation of what they do need to produce um, for that evidence purpose. So I think it's a good thing and a bad thing, um, but certainly it's very good for the end user, for the system itself, and to make sure we've got the best tools that are out there. I think one of the challenges might be funding for this, but I think this needs to be part of the kind of funding cycle. So when you're getting investment in as an innovator, it's something that you need to cater for is to make sure that you've got that um, evidence generation area covered as well. I think the big things we all talk about is AI and certainly generative AI. And we've kind of talked about usual AI tools um, and now they're really coming into the market and we're seeing tangible examples um, of AI tools that are being utilised. So certainly that's going to be um, a big push for us is how do you generate evidence for AI tools and not looking at the, the kind of algorithms, but certainly how do you deploy, how is it different from a digital health technology um, and what can you do from that side of things? But also what's going to be the kind of clinical manifestation of generative AI in healthcare is it all hype at the moment? There's lots of different potential use cases, but how many are actually going to be present in the market in six months and 12 months? How do we utilise those? And actually, how do we generate evidence for these types of tools in the market as well? Yeah, interesting. Well, I look forward to seeing how Prova Health tackle those challenges in the next few years. And I just want to say thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on the podcast. It's been great talking to you and a pleasure to have you back on. Yeah, pleasure being here. Thank you very much.